Okay, well, one of the things that we uh, we talked about at the beginning of our Isaiah study, and this was a long time ago, so I'll just remind you of that. Uh, we're studying verse by verse through Isaiah, but we're also uh, occasionally uh, looking at different topical uh, subjects and whatnot. And, and one of the things that you guys wanted to do was to address some hard passages, some difficult uh verses in the Bible to understand, and, and as we've done a couple of times before, Isaiah has once again brought those two things together. We're still in Isaiah, we're still going verse by verse, but today we stumble across a verse that we might say is a difficult passage of Scripture to interpret. And uh, so bringing those two things together, and um, so if you want to turn with me in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 45, and we'll jump back uh, to where we left off last time. And uh, I will introduce you to the uh, the topic that we're thinking about here. Um, Melissa was asking, what psalm do we read this morning? Um, we read Psalm 119, just the first two stanzas, which is uh, the first uh, 16 verses. And then Pastor Terry, I think Pastor Terry is in like the, he's around 121 or he, he's toward the end of the of the chapter. And he'll be talking about that in his sermon later on today. Okay, so let's turn our attention to um, to Isaiah. Let me start the PowerPoint here. Okay, and then let's see if I can share this now. Okay, everybody see the screen? You good? Okay. okay. Every week I change up how I do this to try to make the presentation good for the folks here as well as at you at home. And, of course, I have to be able to see my notes, too. So I, I think we'll try this here and we'll see how this works, okay? So um, we've stumbled upon a, a passage today. It's Isaiah 45, verse 7, and it introduces a topic that uh, maybe you've, you have not heard this word before, or maybe you have and you're trying to remember what it means. Uh, it's the word theodicy. Uh, just by a show of hands, how many of you have heard the word theodicy before? Just raise your hand. Okay, a handful of you there. Okay, now th- this is, uh, it's not a word that comes from the Bible. You won't find this in your concordance. But like a lot of theological words, uh, it's necessary to describe a concept that we do see in Scripture. And uh, as, as the title indicates there, theodicy is addressing the problem of evil. And, uh, and of course, you know, this is a common, um, a common reaction to the Christian message. You know, if a good God exists, why is there so much bad in the world? And, and yes. if he's there, why doesn't he do something about it? So, and that, that's a really good question. And, and so we want to talk a little bit about that today. And Isaiah is actually going to introduce us to a passage that, that brings those two things together. God existing, God's good and the fact that evil exists and, and how those two things come together. So, again, we, we've got to keep moving. We have a short uh, class, as you remember, in the new schedule. So let's let's jump in with both feet here, okay? So first of all, let me just give you a definition. Theodicy is the explanation of how God can be good and in control even though evil exists. Okay? Doing Sunday school. <laughs> so that's uh, – all right, so that's, uh, that's, a, that's our definition, okay? Theodicy is the explanation of how God can be good – and in control, even though evil exists. And those are three truth statements. In fact, often when you hear theodicy introduced, you'll, you'll hear these truth statements. Uh, statement number one, God is good. Statement number two, God is in control. 
Statement number three, evil exists. And the problem is it's very difficult to see how all three of those can exist. Uh, many of you remember the book in the 1980s, uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner's book called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. And maybe some of you remember that. Maybe some of you even read that. And uh, that was uh, Rabbi Kushner's attempt to address the problem of theodicy and whatnot. And, and you may remember, uh, largely based on the book of Job, his conclusion was that God is good and evil does exist, but God is not in control. And we go, ah, well, that, that's not a very good uh, conclusion either. But, but just sort of logically trying to work through of all that, that's where Kushner lands in the book. Well, we have a better explanation. But to introduce that, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 45, and uh, we'll look at where we left off last time. Remember, we're in, a, we're in a section right here that's talking about God's greatness and his sovereignty, how he rules overall, and um, he's demonstrating that in that he's going to bring this, this Persian unknown uh, guy with a goofy name, and uh, he's going to come and he's going to deliver God's people from Babylon as they are in captivity. Now, now remember, if, if you're new or if you've forgotten, as Isaiah is writing in chapters 40 to 66, you know he's living at a certain time in history, but he's looking ahead 150 years to a time when Judah, the southern kingdom, will be in Babylon, and so he's writing to them. So, so think of Isaiah writing to Daniel's generation 150 years after him. And so that's kind of where we're thinking, and as a part of that message, he's reminded the people that uh, he has appointed this Persian king named Cyrus who's going to come and uh, deliver the people. Okay, so that's where we're at in Isaiah 45. And uh, last time we're talking about these great statements of God's greatness and his glory, and, and um, he's going to do all this. He's gonna, he's gonna, he is going to take over the most powerful nation that exists. This is Babylon. This is Nebuchadnezzar. This is uh, Belshazzar. This is all those great kings that we read about. And, and this guy Cyrus is going to come in and do that. And why is he going to do that? Well, verse 6 tells us, we'll, we'll pick it up in Isaiah 45, verse 6, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me, that I am the Lord and there is no other. Okay, so that, that's where we're at. God is demonstrating his inequality, right? His, there's no one like him. And he's going to do that in part by bringing... Cyrus in to take over Babylon. Now look with me at verse 7. This is the verse that we're going to look at today. Verse 7. The one, and this is a continuation, right? This is just a continuation of what we've been reading. Okay, the, the God unequaled. It says, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. And this introduces our problem, our, our, our dilemma here. Uh, how many of you have a different version? It says something other than creating calamity. Just, any of you have a different version? Uh, Becky, what does yours say? You gotta unmute there so we can hear you though. Uh, I, and I make peace and create evil. Okay. Yes, yeah, so you have a King James Version? Mm-hmm. Okay, see, there we go. That's, that's the situation. I figured one of you would probably have a King James, okay? So on your notes there, the word translated calamity is sometimes translated evil as Becky's version, as the King James Version. See, the problem is the, the word that's used here, 
the, the word that's used to, I, I gotta be careful. I, I can't wander like I like to, so I gotta stay right in front of the camera here. So the word that is used is sometimes translated evil, and that's led to confusion. Um, it's a very general word. Uh, it's the word rot, and it does, it can mean evil in some contexts, but, uh, the, the New American Standard and more, and some of the other versions better translated calamity. Uh, and, and some 150 times it's, it's translated, uh, correctly in that way. But it still, it still kind of raises the issue, right? What, what God is saying is, and now, now, now make sure your seatbelts are fastened here, okay? What God is saying is, all this stuff that's going to happen where Cyrus comes in and he takes over Babylon and he, he destroys, um, Babylon as we know it, kills tons of people. God's saying, I'm gonna do that. And that raises the issue, right? Because we would look at those things and say, man, that, those are not good things. So hence, that, that, that raises our, our, uh, topic, okay? So, so here's the question we want to try to answer today in part. In what sense does God create calamity? In what sense does God create calamity? And, and let's, let's just see how far we can get here. The first thing I want you to do is don't panic. Okay? Do not panic. Uh, my name is Keith. I'll be your tour guide here today and we will, Lord willing, uh, get you safely through the murky waters of difficult passages, okay? But when you read in your Bible, when you read difficult verses, what's the first thing you should do? After you panic, what, what should you do? Uh, you okay? Maybe pray for wisdom. That might be good. Yeah. What, what else should we do? Compare it with other scripture. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The first thing we want to do, even before we get to other scriptures, although that's really good, Amber, is we want to look at the context. Look at the context. Uh, context, context, context is your friend. Say it with me, class. Context is my friend. Yes. Okay. So it's very important. Often when you get to a difficult passage, what happens is we read it in some sort of superficial way or some sort of disconnected way. And then we run three miles in the wrong direction in anxiety. And what we need to do is just read the passage in its context. Just read it in the flow. So if we look at this passage, look at, now look back at Isaiah 45. We just look at it in its context. What do we see? What we see is the calamity that God is said here to create is the divinely enabled battle success that Cyrus will achieve as he subdues the nations as an act of God's judgment upon them. That's what's going on. So is Cyrus going to go and kill people and break things? Yes, he is. Is he going to take over Babylon and it's going to be a, a massive slaughter? Is he going to take over other peoples and other nations and, and it's going to be bloody and, and horrible in many ways? Yes, he is. But what we need to see is God's point is not that the, the blood and, and the violence and all that, 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 that's not what, what he's emphasizing. What he's emphasizing is God is creating the success that Cyrus will have to go do that. Why? As an act of God's judgment. Remember, remember this, this whole context is about what? It's about the surrounding nations who are false worshipers. They're idolaters. They're pagans. And God is bringing judgment upon them. And that judgment, guys, 
is right and good and, and wholesome and righteous. It, it's, it, that's a good thing for God to do. And that sort of gets us into this topic because anytime we see God's sovereignty, his work, his providence over things that we say, wait a minute, God is in control, right? But there are some things happening that we know God hates, like violence, like, you know, killing people, right? So, so that's where we come to this issue of theodicy. It's how do we reckon a good God who is in control with the fact that there are evil and wicked things that happen and some places in the Bible, like right here, it says when God is even in control of those things. So are you with me? Is this making sense? Okay, that's the odyssey. That's the problem, okay? So first of all, when you come to a passage like that, don't freak out. Don't run in the wrong direction. Just let read the context and, and get a sense of what's actually going on. And in fact, there are some other texts. In fact, th there are other texts in the Bible that say this exact same thing. So let me just show you two of them. I, we, we could go all over the place, but let me show you two of my favorites that I think are particularly helpful. If you're in Isaiah, uh, just move ahead past Isaiah. So turn to the right in your Bible to Jeremiah, and then keep going past Jeremiah's big book and get over to his little book called Lamentations. And as you're turning to Lamentations, you know the context. Uh, Jeremiah has lived through the Babylonian captivity. That, that's actually... Part of what we've just talked about where uh, Isaiah has foreseen the Babylonian captivity and then that's followed by Cyrus coming in. So we understand that. But uh, Jeremiah is writing about the destruction of Jerusalem and he is grieving and mourning over that. And you guys are well familiar with this chapter. This is the, the chapter where we, we remember, right? Surely my soul remembers and has bowed down within me. Chapter 3, verse 20. The Lord's love and kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That sounds like a song, doesn't it? Um, so it's a great section. And again, just like Isaiah, Isaiah is talking about God's greatness and his wonder and his character in the midst of his uh, it, judgment and, and things going on. Well, that's exactly what's going on in, in Jeremiah's day. God has used the Babylonians to come in as a disciplinary instrument against his people. And Jeremiah is remembering, as he recounts all this, God's faithfulness and his mercy, even in the midst of all of this, okay? So let's pick it up now. Look at Lamentations chapter 3, uh, verse 37, okay? Who is there who speaks, and it comes to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Now, just, just make sure we're all on the same page there. What does that mean? Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless unless the Lord has commanded it? What's that saying? Nothing happens outside of God's sovereignty. Nothing happens outside of God's sovereignty. And, of course, God's sovereignty refers to his rule overall, right? So if um, if something comes to pass, something happens... Guess what? God commanded it. God ordained it. God planned it. That's what that's what Jeremiah is saying. Now, now imagine the shock of Jeremiah's readers as they're looking at their city burning to the ground. Their temple is leveled. Their wall is destroyed. The the, the 
this beautiful city up on the hill in uh, where Jerusalem sits, gone. And Jeremiah says, I just want you to know God did this. Right, and that, that's the shock of it. Now, now the readers shouldn't be that shocked because for decades the prophets have been telling the people this is going to happen if you don't repent. So in one regard, it's not a surprise. But it, it might be a surprise to see it actually happen because we say, well, why would a good God do that? Didn't God spend, uh, you know, years and years and years telling them to build that temple and, and, and you just... You, it just makes you, makes you wonder. Okay? Verse 37. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? And there's that same little, um, little phrase that we saw in Isaiah. Good and ill. Your Bible might say good and evil. It's the same rendering. And so we say, wait a minute. Is this God saying that he causes evil? Does God cause evil? That's the question. And, um, well, looking at the context, again, what we learn is that the, the evil, if you will, the ill, I-L-L, uh, that doesn't mean sick, that means bad things, um, that in context is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which God has said he's doing it. Why? As an act of his judgment. Okay, so it's it's not that it's you know evil and bad in and of itself. God is saying I'm doing this in order to bring about the judgment, the discipline that I've promised. And why do the why do the prophets say they're going to do that? The prophets say they're going to do that. God's going to do that because He's working to restore His people and transform His people into worshipers that will follow Him. Okay, now I want to show you my favorite example of this though. Okay, turn back to the book of Job. Go all the way back, just turn to the left, past Proverbs, past Psalms, to Job chapter 1. And I want to show you this. Um, you guys know the story of Job, right? Uh, so Job is this righteous man. Uh, he's the greatest of the men of the East. The, the text tells us he's, he's a God-fearer. Uh, he's got ten adult children. Uh, he has lots of animals, lots of farmland, lots of servants, very prominent, very very uh, wealthy and, and successful. And uh, and you know the story that uh, there was a day when Satan and some other angels were presenting themselves to God, and God turns Satan's attention to Job and says, Have you considered my servant Job? That's Job chapter 1, verse 8. Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth, blameless and upright, hearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? And, and that question, does Job fear God for no reason, that question frames what happens in the whole rest of the book. The book is about this question. Is God worthy of our worship and allegiance even if he doesn't do nice things for us? Is God worthy of our worship even if he doesn't give us material blessings? And Satan's charge to God is that the only reason people would worship you, including Job, is because God has made their life so nice. And Satan's challenge is if you take those nice things away, Job not only will not worship you anymore, but he will actually curse you to your face. That's the challenge, and I did like 55 messages on this book. It's on our website somewhere if you're interested, okay? So back to the text. And so God 
responds to Satan's challenge by giving Satan permission to afflict Job. We see that in chapter 1, verse 12. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now, now, watch this. Okay, Verse 13. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, the fire of God, that that means lightning, like we were watching over the weekend with those thunderstorms. The fire of God is a reference to lightning. Fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew them and the servants, the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, Another came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness, and it struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So here's my question. Here's my question, okay? Who was responsible for Job's calamity? What's that? You could say Satan. Okay, so Katie's here in the studio audience, and she says Satan. Okay, what what do you viewers at home think? Satan was the instrument of the the evil that came on Job. Satan was the instrument of the evil that came on Job. Okay, all right. Someone else? Are we landing on Satan as as the cause here? Well, let's do what we just learned to do. Let's look at the context, right? Let's go to the book. Look at this. Look at verse 16. While he was still speaking, the fire of God fell from heaven. That's lightning. Verse 19, a great wind came out of the wilderness. So we can say the weather did it. This is a natural disaster of weather. This is hurricanes and floods and Tornadoes, right? The weather did it. Or, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. That, that can't be right because verse 12 says, then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all the hands your powers. So Satan did it, right? That's what you're, that's what you guys are saying. Satan did it. Well, wait, 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 wait a minute. That's, that's not totally right because look at verse 15. The Sabaeans attacked and took them. And verse 17, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels. So, the bad guys did it. Right? So we have the weather did it. We have Satan did it. We have the bad guys did it. And there's Keith, one more. There's one more. Keith? Yes, Roger. Your key word there is who was responsible. Yes. And in that respect, God is. Okay. And, and that gets to my last point. Thank you, Roger. That was a great segue. Look at verse 12. Then the Lord said to Satan, notice the key phrase here, behold, all that he has is what? What is it? In your power. In your power. You know what that means? None of that was in Satan's power until God gave him permission. Right? 
And, and we know that because God says you can't kill him. And you better believe that Satan would have done that in a moment if he had the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And notice, uh, going back to Roger's comment, look at the very end of the, of the chapter. Then Job, this is verse 20, arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell to the ground, and he worshipped, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord did what? He gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now watch this. This is, this is going to make your brain hurt, okay? This is going to make your head hurt. I'm telling you in advance, okay? Verse 22. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So watch what just happened. Job just said, God did this, but it's not God's fault. Did you see that? The Lord gave, the Lord take away, has taken away, but Job in, as, in ascribing these things ultimately to God, he was nonetheless not blaming God for the badness of what happened. Does that make your head hurt? Yeah. It should. Okay. So that's the, this is the odyssey, guys. This is this dilemma. Who is responsible for Job's calamity? The weather, Satan, the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, and God. And the answer is yes. See, it's complicated. It's complicated. So let, let me unscramble it for you, okay? Let's, now let's do what Amber said, which, which is going to help us, okay? Because Job has helped us to see that there are levels of causation. Can we call them that? Levels of causation. There are degrees of responsibility. There are spheres of responsibility when we think about what happens and who's responsible for them. We should not take Job's comments to mean that the Sabaeans and Chaldeans were great guys, because they weren't. We should not take Job's conclusion that God did these things to mean that when weather kills people, we go, oh, that's no big deal. Nor should it cause us to ignore Satan. Of course, God had no idea, or uh, God, uh, Job had no idea what was going on with Satan. In fact, nobody in the book of Job ever knows about what God and Satan had talked about. Nobody knows that. Um, but what's interesting is, throughout the whole book of Job, no character. Job never says this. Eliphaz doesn't say this. Bildad doesn't say it. Zophar doesn't say it. Um, Elihu doesn't say it. Nobody in the books ever says the Sabaeans did it. No one in the book ever says we need to move and get out of tor- Tornado Alley, right? We just need to go somewhere. Nobody says that. Everybody in the book of Job says God is the one who's doing this. So how do we how do we make sense of that? Let, let's let's look at some major points here. The first thing we need to remember is that God is pure. Or God is good, he is pure, and he is utterly holy. And if you want to quickly follow along with me, uh, we're going to just kind of do a, a Bible lightning round here. Uh, or if you'd like to just sit back, relax, and listen, that's fine too. But just listen, you, you guys know this already. I, uh, Psalm 135, verse 3. Praise the Lord, for he is good. God is good. Nahum says the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. The Bible everywhere everywhere affirms the goodness of God. Uh, And in fact, he's not just good, he is holy. Leviticus 11.44, amongst others, uh, you know these verses, God says, 
uh, I am holy, right? I'm holy. I'm set apart. I'm, I'm, I'm pure. I'm sinless. I'm free from sin. Unless we think, uh, that, that that is somehow tainted in some way. First John, as he introduces his letter, uh, way back in the New Testament, he says, this is the message we have heard. Okay, here it is, right? You want to know the message of the gospel? God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is, is pure holiness. He is utter, undiluted goodness. And so there's no wickedness, no evil, no uh, uh, badness, no corruption, nothing like that. Number two, God hates evil and is incapable of evil or even being tempted by evil. Uh, way back uh, next to 1 John in the book of James, uh, in, in talking about temptation, uh, James reminds his readers, what? When anyone is tempted, he can't say, I am being tempted by God. You say, why is that? James tells us, because God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Okay, So he's incapable of temptation. He's incapable of evil. Uh, even God himself is not tempted, right? God is not enticed by anything wicked or bad, okay? So that's the second thing. Third thing, God plans and ordains and controls all things, right? God plans and ordains and controls all things. You say, are you sure? Are we sure? Well, again, listen to Ephesians, okay? Listen to the comprehensiveness of the language. Chapter 1, verse 11. Of Ephesians. Uh, also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose. Here it is, talking about God, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And we've seen that in Isaiah, haven't we? Isaiah has told us God co uh, controls and ordains all things. The prophets have told us that. The Psalms have told us that. The New Testament letters tell us that. Uh, we cannot read the Bible even casually and conclude that God is not in complete control of all things. Okay? So God's good. We got that. God hates evil. Got that. God plans and ordains and controls everything. Now, that's hard because that includes sin and evil. So now we scratch our head and we go, well, how's that work? Well, let's look at the last one, and, and then we'll, we'll understand this, okay? The last one is this. God is never morally responsible for evil. He is never morally responsible for evil. And and that and this is this is where we have to really be careful not just how we think about these things, but how we talk about them. And we'll talk about how we talk in a minute. Verse 29 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, behold I have found only this that God made men upright but they have sought out many devices. You see the, the, the dichotomy? God is saying, I made them good, but they are practicing bad. God's saying, I'm not responsible for what happened in that. I'm not morally responsible for the evil that they cause. And when we see this in other places, um, uh, where, where uh, for example, we see uh, Jesus in the Gospels telling us that people will stand before God and give an account for every careless word that they speak. See, people are responsible. Revelation tells us there is a judgment coming where the books are opened and every person is judged on the basis of their deeds. Uh, simple things like, like um, God tells Pharaoh, if you don't do this, 
let my people go, this bad thing is going to happen. And God held, uh, God held Pharaoh responsible for that. So God is not morally responsible for the evil and wickedness that we see in the world, even though he is sovereign over all those things. Okay, those are the four sort of theological uh, foundational things we need to look at. Now, with that, with that, let's talk about how all this works together. Okay, and again, I'm sorry we got to keep going because of time. First of all, remember that words mean things. Words mean things, so be careful how you talk about this. Okay. How we speak of God's relationship to sin and evil and calamities is very important. So let me give you some definitions to help you here, okay? We use these terms all the time, and I want to make sure that you know what you're saying when you say these things. Okay, so you just, you just, uh, you know, you do the quiz on your own and have your neighbor grade it for you, okay? See how you're doing. Sovereignty. This is God's rule over all things. That's what we mean when we talk about God's sovereignty. What we're saying is he rules over all. Cause, this is something or someone who brings about an effect or a result. Okay, when we talk about causing, we're talking about something or someone who brings about an effect or a result. Now, now here's where you need to think very carefully. As we have seen in Job, there are more than one cause. There is more than one cause. And theologians talk about primary causes and secondary causes. Now, you need to get this because this comes out in how we speak about these things. A primary cause is the main agent who brings it about. A secondary cause is an additional agent who works under the primary agent. So going back to Job, what do we see? Job is telling us God is overall. God is, is ultimately in control. It's ultimately God's plan. But under God's sovereignty, he has given freedom a measured amount of freedom to Satan to use people and to use weather to bring about calamity in Joe's life. So we might, we, in, in analyzing that, we would say God is the primary agent and Satan and the weather and the Sabaeans and Chaldeans are the secondary causes. Do you see that? That's how we, we try to bring those two things together. And understanding there's a primary cause, there's a secondary cause, or a primary agent and a secondary agent, okay? So a couple more here. Uh, we've got allow, right? This refers to permission given. Now, you saw that in Job, right? God gave Satan permission. Satan needed that permission in order to do anything. Uh, Satan is on the leash of God, and God has to give him uh, extension of that leash for him to do anything. So allowing refers to permission. Responsible is the cause or the explanation, okay? So those are some words that we use. Now let's look at some examples, okay? And we may need to uh, come back and do this uh, another time, uh, just looking at the clock here. But let, let's see how many of these we can do, okay? What do you think about this? Even though this bad thing happened, I know God is in control. What, what do you think about that? Is that a good description of what we've seen? Is that accurate or is that inaccurate? Accurate. That's accurate, isn't it? That's right. Yes. This, this is a, a um, appropriate and proper way of talking about what we, what we see. So we see bad things happening in the world, and based upon what we know about sovereignty, we say, you know, 
God is in control. And that is right. That is true. So that would be one way we want to do this. How about this? God didn't cause the coronavirus. What do you think about that one? That's a little bit harder, isn't it? I see some of you shaking your heads. What does that mean? Interpret your head shaking for me. He allowed it to happen. Okay, he allowed it to happen. Okay. Yeah, the problem with this is it's one-dimensional, right? It doesn't take into account what we've talked about, that God is God in control? Yes, he is. Did God cause the coronavirus at one level of that primary agency? We would say yes. But that, that misses this whole idea that the world is sinful and fallen, and a result of that are viruses and things that make people sick, and those are secondary causes. So if we just say God didn't cause the coronavirus, that, that misses the fact that God is sovereign overall, including viruses, right? So, so that, that's imbalanced. What, what, what we might say is that God is in control of all things, and including viruses, but that all evil and wickedness and, and results of the fall, like the virus, um, are, a, are a secondary cause because we live in this fallen world. So when you say God allowed it, that, that gets a little bit better, that, that gets a little closer to the balance we're trying to achieve. Okay, does that make sense? So you, you have to be careful about how you talk about this. Here's a really hard one. I've had many people ask me this. God is responsible for my abuse since he didn't stop it from happening. That's really hard, isn't it? That, that's a really serious situation. And, and that's where we have to think rightly about, about these things. Uh, God is in control. We, we, we don't say that things happen, even horrible things like abuse, without God's uh, providence and his sovereignty over those events. He he allows in his providence many things to occur that we know God hates. But we also have to say that abuse and wickedness and evil are the result of sinful people doing horrible things to other people. And morally speaking, morally speaking, it's sinful people that are responsible, not God. Do you see that? So we say, yes, God is in control. Yes, God is sovereign over horrible events like abuse. But the moral responsibility is given to the agents, the, the actual people who would do the abuse. Okay? So, again, th these, are, these are hard. These are difficult. Um, it, it, this bad thing must be okay because God controls everything. I think, again, you see how that's imbalanced, right? It misses the fact that God is in control of all things, but in his control, he allows many things that he hates, uh, but nonetheless allows for them to do. So, so, okay, so I know what you're thinking. So here's the million-dollar question. Why? Why would God do that? Why would God do that? Well, there you go. There's question mark. Does it have to do with um, our ability to have a choice, a free will of some sort? Uh, well, in part, and, and this this is the, the brevity of our class today, so let me just give you this. God demonstrates his redemptive awesomeness by transforming all fallen things into means that glorify himself and produce good to his children. 
That, that's the clearest answer God gives us to why. And that's Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So why God demonstrates his amazing redemptive character by using all fallen things, transforming them into things that glorify himself and produce good in his children. Now, if that's the, the million-dollar question, there's a trillion-dollar question, and that is, how does he do that? How does he do that? And then there's the question mark, because that's what makes him God. How he does that is a mystery, and that's what makes him God, and you and me aren't God. Okay? So, and that's the point. That's what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is saying, stand in awe of your God. Praise him for it. The fact that we can't wrap our brains around how all this works is the explanation, right? We, we're supposed to stand in awe of who he is and what he does because we can't fathom all this. How can he turn evil into good? Well, that's the amazing God that he is. Okay? So we'll talk more about this next time. And uh, let's pray so, you, so those of you that want to come up here can jump in your cars. Uh, Father, thank you for our time in your word. Uh, we are grateful uh, just to stand in awe of your amazing nature, how you turn evil and wickedness into good and uh, uh, useful and amazing purposes that display your glory. Uh, help us to trust you. Help us to speak rightly about these things uh, and help us uh, to always rest in your good and holy and sovereign care over us all. In Jesus' name, amen.